the rest of the team. The Lord is here. He is, he is with us in Christ Jesus. Uh, he loves us. He loves you in Christ infinitely and eternally. Um, he is with you. He is for you today. And that's, uh, that is really good news. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, I've been preaching through the book of Acts. Uh, we are in Acts chapter 20 today. Uh, Acts chapter 20. And uh, we will be reading in just a second, uh, starting in verse 13. Acts chapter 20, we'll start in verse 13. We will read all the way through verse 38. The book of Acts tells us how the gospel message of Christ spread after Jesus ascended back to heaven. And at this point in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is now on his third and final missionary trip in this book, going around telling other people about Christ, starting up churches. Uh, Paul is now on the homeward leg of his final trip. He's heading toward Jerusalem, and Paul now makes a very important stop. Uh, Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll read. Well, Father, we do just turn our hearts to you now in and through Christ Jesus. We do believe that in this book, you have breathed out for us eternal truth, inspired of God. And, and Father, we would just ask that you now, the one who breathed this out for our good, would send your Holy Spirit across this room, that you would open our hearts so that we might see, so that we might receive your eternal truth and be changed Be encouraged by you, convicted by you, whatever it is that we need today, Father. We ask now that you would work in and through your scriptures for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 13, Luke is writing here, and Luke said, But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the, mis- the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. 
For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. Amen. What does good Christian ministry look like? What does good Christian ministry look like? The Bible says that all Christians, that everyone here who has a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are all called to minister to other people, the saints doing the work of the ministry, Ephesians chapter 4. But that begs the question, what does good Christian ministry look like? What is it exactly? And you know, we might be tempted to say things like, well, good ministry just means being really gifted at speaking. A preacher like Henry Smith, 1500, so gifted with his words, people called him, the, people called him silver-tongued Smith. Or good ministry means being a great leader. You're strong, you're powerful, you can lead people. Or good ministry for a church, it means having a really good worship band on Sunday morning. Or the entire service and all the classes just done flawlessly, smooth, slick in everything you do. You know, there's just all kinds of things that we might list as, as, as marks or characteristics of good Christian ministry. But God's ways, as the Bible says, are not our ways. And God's idea of good ministry is very different than our natural ideas of good ministry. And God has given us here in this text some marks or characteristics of good ministry. Derek Thomas says this, he says, Paul's words here are filled with important lessons for us today about the nature of Christian ministry. Now, just to be clear, Paul is speaking to elders of a local church here, the pastors of the church in Ephesus, speaking specifically to pastors, but Paul's words here can apply more generally to all Christian ministry that all Christians do. We see, I think, four things here that we'll look at today. Four marks or characteristics of good Christian ministry. Here they are on the screen. What does good Christian ministry look like? Weakness, declaration, warning, and freely. 
weakness, declaration, warning, freely. And the first thing we see here, one mark of good ministry is weakness. You minister to other people in and through your weakness. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he says in verses 13 to 16 there that Paul was now heading to Jerusalem after stopping uh, in several towns along the way here. He finally arrived in Miletus. Here's a map of where he is. He's right in the middle of this map there, uh, just about 30 miles south of Ephesus. And Ephesus, if you remember earlier in Acts, Paul spent several years in Ephesus starting a church there. And Paul has to hurry past Ephesus now, but he does want to speak to the elders, the pastors of the church there in Ephesus. So he calls them to come to him down in Miletus. And I want you to notice what Paul does here when he talks to these elders. He wants to teach these pastors how to minister. And so what does Paul do? He basically says here, look at me. Look at the example that I set for you when I was with you ministering there in Ephesus. Look at how he starts in verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia serving the Lord. And you see what he's saying? You know how I ministered. And Paul then basically says here throughout this text, Now follow my lead. Follow my example. And that is... That is something that Paul says all over the letters that he writes. Here's a taste. Here's 1 Corinthians 4, 16. Paul says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 4, 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Imitate me. And the first thing that Paul points to right here that these elders could have seen in his life, something that he wants them to copy in their own ministry, is weakness. If you look at verse 19, he says, You know how I lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, and with tears, and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And there's several things that Paul says there. First, you, you know, elders, how I served or ministered with all humility. Not ministering among you in pride. Not taking the high seat all the time among you. Having to be recognized all the time. Noticed by you. Puffed up in my own strength, in my power, trying to control you, trying to manhandle you. Not puffed up by how much I know, constantly telling you how much I know. Not boasting in my verbal skills or my great abilities. No, I ministered among you with all humility, modesty, meekness, lowliness, willing to yield Surrendering my rights, full of mercy, gentle, as Paul says, like a nursing mother with her children, taking the low seat among you. Humility. 
And listen, humility is, is just a critical attribute for every Christian. That we would be actively cultivating humility in our lives. Jonathan Edwards once said that pride is the worst viper that lives in the human heart. And please hear me, pride lives in every heart in this room. And God says, 1 Peter 5, humble yourself, Christian. And that takes work. If you are not right now, if you are not right now actively working to cultivate humility in your lives, then pride is growing. Pride is like a weed. It will grow in your heart if you do nothing. If you want a beautiful flower called humility in your heart, you must work at humility. We must actively look for pride in our own hearts, not in your spouse's heart. We must fight that pride and learn how to minister in humility. And Paul also says in verse 18 that he ministered with tears. Paul talks about his tears twice in this text, there in verse 18 and down in verse 31. Paul now reminding these elders here how he had wept for those in Ephesus. And I do think that Paul is talking there about actual physical tears at times for the people in Ephesus. Remember, pastors, how I wept for your souls. How I wept that, that you would know Christ, know the love of Christ. How, how I wept that you would trust in and follow Christ and be confident in Christ. I wept for you. And those tears were an expression of Paul's love for these people. Paul ministering to these people. Not like we see so often today in this cold and kind of removed professional manner. But with his heart on his sleeve. Weeping, deep emotion, compassionate love, commitment for these people. And lastly, verse 18, Paul says he ministered with trials. Enduring great pain to care for these Christians back in Ephesus. Not running at the first hint of suffering, but pressing on through suffering for their good. I ministered among you pastors in humility and in tears and in trials. And you, you put all of that under one umbrella. And I think Paul's saying there, I ministered among you in great weakness. It's one of the marks of good ministry. You do it in and through weakness. Not ministering primarily through your strengths, your great knowledge, your great speaking abilities, your, 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 any of that. Yes, those are important. God has gifted every Christian with great strengths. Use your strengths. But please know, Christians, that the bulk of all good ministry is done not through your strength, but through your weakness. Ministry done in humility Humbling yourself before others. Counting others as more significant than you. Confessing your sin to others. Learning to serve others. Ministry done in humility. Ministry done in tears. Letting your heart be gripped for people. Not just your head, your heart. That you might have emotion, compassion, empathy for the people around you. 
and ministry done in trials, enduring pain for the good of others, a ministry in weakness. And listen, all of us have to learn that. That's not how our world operates to do anything through weakness. We must all learn how to do that, and especially all leaders, like Paul, leading out of his own weakness, setting the example for others, modeling that for others, leading out of brokenness, leading, as Dan Allender says, with a limp. Like Paul here, boasting in weakness as he opens this message to the elders. For that right there, ministering in our weakness, as 2 Corinthians 4 says, is when the power of Christ will truly rest on your ministry. And that's the first mark of good ministry here. It's, it's, it's weakness. And a second mark here then is declaration. Paul now points to the example he had set in declaring the, the scriptures, the, the, the good news gospel message of Christ to those people in Ephesus. You look at the text carefully here. Paul now, he just loads up here with all these words having to do with declaration. Let me show them to you. He, he just said, you, you know how I ministered in humility, tears, and trials. And then look at verse 20. And you also know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. That's what I did. That's the example I set. I was not hesitant. I did not avoid. I did not draw back in fear from declaring anything in these scriptures that would be eternally profitable for you. And then look at the middle of verse 20. Just again, these declaring words. And teaching, he said, you. In public and from house to house. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I taught everywhere, he's saying, in public and, and house to house, in private, and in testifying to everyone, both Jews and Greeks, and proclaiming all that's important, both repentance and faith. Saying to all people, Jesus died for our sins, and to receive what Christ has done, be forgiven, become part of God's family, you must repent. You must turn away from your sin. You must cling to and receive and follow Christ in faith. And then you have all that Christ purchased for you. Preaching both repentance and faith. Then look at verse 22. Just keeps talking about this declaration. He says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. I know I will suffer, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. The only thing, Paul is saying, that I care about now is not my own life, but it is fulfilling the ministry given to me. And what was the ministry given to the Apostle Paul? Look at the end of verse 24. That I might fulfill my ministry to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. My ministry is declaring the gospel. Then look at verse 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I 
testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I am innocent of the blood of all people in Ephesus. And why? I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Every bit of truth in Scripture, I I did not hide it from you. And Paul is saying, I am innocent, therefore, of the blood of those in Ephesus. I've washed my hands of their blood, meaning that if the people in Ephesus now failed to repent of sin and trust in Christ, if they did not receive forgiveness from Christ, if they would die and go to an eternal hell, it would not be Paul's fault. Because Paul had told them the truth. Washing his hands of their blood. But the clear implication right there in that text is that if Paul had shrunk back from declaring all God's truth, if he had skipped over parts that he thought might offend, if he loaded his sermons with only the softer parts of the word, like love and peace, but he avoided the harder parts, like wrath and hell, if Paul had failed to share the whole counsel of God, he would have been guilty of all. The blood of the Ephesians on his hands because he failed to tell them the truth. And and please hear this. Preachers like me, or, or, or teachers, or anyone else for that matter, who opens their mouth to share the scriptures in any way, we should take that very seriously. James 3.1 says this, and there's a reason you'll, you, you see now why it says this. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And I take that seriously. I will be judged with greater strictness based on what I do or do not do with this right here among you. When I see him, when I die, the question will be, did I tell you the whole truth? Washing my hands of your blood, or just tell you some of the truth? Shrinking back, for whatever reasons, blood on my hands. And we see here then in this part of the text, just this emphasis on declaring. Declaring, proclaiming, testifying over and over through there. And again, it's just another mark of good ministry. What does good ministry look like? We do it in weakness and we do it with declaration. And listen, that's not just important in pastoral ministry. That's important in all Christian ministry. A good Christian ministry 
will be a word-based, word-saturated ministry sharing these scriptures, the gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ in spoken or written words, sharing it. Faithful workers, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, rightly handling the word of truth. And, and that means, Christian, you should probably read this word. Because it's hard to rightly handle the word in ministry if you do not even know the word. So that's the second mark of good ministry. First weakness and then declaration. And a third thing we see here then is warning. Warning. Good, good ministry, Christian ministry. It means that you warn people at times. Which Paul does right here now, if you look at verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Pay attention, you you pastors, you elders from Ephesus, pay, pay attention to two things, Paul says. One, pay attention to yourselves. Before you ever pay attention to anybody else, pay attention to yourself. Watch your lives. That you don't fall into sin. Watch your doctrine, that it's in line with God's Word. Watch your emotions, that you steward them well. Watch for pride in your ministry. Be suspicious of your motives in ministry, your compulsions, the reasons why you want to minister. Charles Spurgeon, he wrote a a famous book called The Minister's Self-Watch. And it's just so important that pastors, but also that every Christian who ministers has a close watch on his or her life. And we need to hear that today, don't we? Because it's really easy to become skilled in certain aspects of ministry. You can become a pastor if you just graduate from seminary. Become skilled in in different aspects of ministry. Learn how to teach. Learn how to administrate. Learn how to play instruments, maybe. You learn a lot of theology, but under the surface of that iceberg in the soul, there can still be all kinds of pride and anger and bitterness and uh, jealousy and envy and greed. Not jelly. And God says, watch yourself. Watch yourself. And why should Christians watch their lives? This healthy self-watch. Giving their own souls some healthy self-care. Here's one reason. John Stott says this. For they cannot care adequately for others if they neglect the care and culture of their own souls. But Paul also says here to these pastors, pay attention to yourself, but also pay attention, he says, 
to the flock in which, he says, the Spirit has made you an overseer. Why? So that, he says, you might care for the church of God, which, verse 28, he, God, obtained with his own blood. It's just a great statement right there. How did God obtain his church? How did God bring you, Christian, into his family with his own blood? The blood of God, which means Jesus is God, because it was the blood of Jesus. God purchased, he bought his church with his own blood, the blood of his own son. And you see what Paul is saying there. That means then that the church, the flock of God, is very, very precious to God because he purchased it with his own blood. And all pastors then should watch carefully over God's blood-bought flock. Richard Baxter, back in the 1600s, he wrote a famous book called The Reformed Pastor. He's not talking about reformed theology. He's talking about how we can reform pastoral ministry and make it better. And he says this to pastors. He says, oh then, Let us hear these arguments of Christ whenever we feel ourselves grow dull and careless. Did I die for them and wilt not thou look after them? Were they worth my blood and are they not worth thy labor? And another reason Paul gives us here why pastors should watch carefully over God's flock. If you look at verse 29 again. Because, Paul is saying, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You know, the Bible talks a lot about wolves among the flock of God. They don't come from the outside. They arise from the inside like Paul just addressed right there. Jesus said that they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They look like sheep. They say they have faith in Christ. They think they do have faith in Christ. But their hearts are not yet changed. They're not not yet in that heart a living faith. They're dressed like sheep, but at heart still wolves. And what do these wolves do among God's flock? Well, Paul gives us one thing here. He says they speak twisted things. Just distorting, to some degree, the Word of God. And why? Look at verse 30. To draw disciples after them. You know, you just pause and think about it. You, you, you can build a, a, a gigantic following for yourself, if you want, in a church. Or in a ministry, worldwide ministry. And you know, one of the things you need to do to, to build a, a big following, just twist God's Word. Just distort it. Pervert it. Pick and choose the things you know that people will like. Pass over the things you know they will not like. And, and draw people to you. Even some of God's own naive sheep. And Paul 
He's now warned these, these pastors that this is coming to Ephesus. And once again, Paul then points to his own ministry as an example of one who warned frequently. If you look, uh, I think it's verse 30. I lost the, the number here. You can put it up there, the next one. Therefore, be alert. Now look, he's, he's pointing to his own life now as one who's warned repeatedly. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish or warn everyone with tears. How do you minister, you, you leaders? And Paul says, look at me. And, and what is one thing I have done? I have warned people. Admonished for three years straight with tears. And it's another mark of good ministry. Good ministry requires that you warn others when necessary. And listen, that is just highly unpopular in some Christian circles today. You know, there's this mindset that we should just always be positive in our words. Just be positive, syrupy sweet. Never negative. Don't raise your voice, which disqualifies me because I always do it. Don't ever warn people. And listen, that is just absolutely ridiculous. You parents, you, you, you have your little child who's wandering inches from the edge of a cliff. And you don't say to that child then, oh honey, I love you. You're walking so well right on the edge of that cliff. Good job. Are you enjoying peace right there? Oh, it's so beautiful, isn't it? No, you say, get back! Now! And you know what that's called when you warn your child like that? That is love it may not sound like love but that is love in that instance and listen when we in the church firmly warn those wandering near a cliff that is also love and why does god do this god warns because god loves and listen any minister who does not warn you when you are near a cliff, it does not matter how sweet that minister sounds, he does not love you. He loves himself. And, and let me be honest, the fact is that some people here probably do need to be warned today. You know, the Bible talks a lot about repentance and faith. We just heard Paul talk about it. Very kind and gracious words in the scriptures about repentance and faith. And, and some of you have probably heard those words for years and you've still not done it. And you continue to wander near that cliff. So Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, he warns you in scripture. Luke 13, 3, Jesus says, unless you repent, you will perish. Or Jesus, John 13, 36, says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Praise God. But then he goes on and says, But whoever does not obey the Son, proving that they do not truly believe the Son, they shall not have life, but will have the wrath of God. 
And Jesus warns you today because Jesus loves you. So that's a third mark here of good ministry. You warn people at times. And Paul then gives us here one final mark of good and faithful ministry. Number four, freely. Freely. You don't do your ministry for worldly gain. You don't do it to draw a crowd after you or to gain material goods. You do it freely. And one final time, Paul says, look at my example, how, how I ministered among you. If you look at verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities, my own hands, and to those who are with me. In all these things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And, and what's Paul, what's he saying very simply? He's just saying, I ministered freely. I didn't minister to try to draw a crowd, people after myself like the wolves will do. I, I didn't minister to gain material goods from people. No, Paul says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I ministered, Paul says, to my own necessities, my own hands. Paul, as we know, working as a tent maker among them to support himself and others, ministering there in Ephesus freely, giving the gospel of Christ to people at no charge. And listen, Paul is not saying there that pastors cannot receive a salary from their church. The Bible is very clear that pastors can. Paul says it himself. First Timothy says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. The laborer deserves his wages. But what Paul is saying right there is that no Christian, no pastor, no Christian who ministers in any way should do it out of covetousness. Out of greed, doing it to gain a following around them, or material goods, or to gain some sort of reputation. 1 Peter 5.2 says this to pastors, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not for shameful gain. And that more generally applies to all Christians. We are to minister not for shameful covetous worldly gain but we are to minister freely but hold on for a second because it's not that you don't gain anything when you minister freely you do look carefully again at the end of verse 35 he says we must remember the words of the lord jesus knowing he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. If you give in ministry freely, not for shameful worldly gain, 
Jesus is saying right there, it will be way better. More blessed for the people you serve, but it will also ultimately be more blessed for you in heaven. Because God sees everything done here on this earth and every bit of ministry that you do freely, not pursuing shameful worldly gain, guess what? God will ultimately reward all of your faithful ministry with your children that nobody else will see, with your neighbor that nobody else will see, with your spouse that nobody else will see, with your friend, with your co-worker, all of your faithful ministry done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ freely, not to gain shamefully for yourself. God will reward you in heaven. Way better rewards than you could ever gain on earth now. And listen, the Bible is clear on this point. You will be rewarded for what you do in this life one way or another. You can either be rewarded for your ministry on earth. All kinds of shameful gain if you, if you want. You can receive now a big following, esteem, material good, storing up for yourself, as Jesus says, treasures on this earth that you will one day lose. All of them. Or you can be rewarded in heaven. Infinitely better rewards, storing up for yourself, as Jesus says, treasure in heaven that you will never, ever, ever lose. You will be rewarded one way or another. And God now says to you in the Bible, choose your rewards. What will it be for you, Christian? Will you do your service to gain now for yourself? Or will you do your service to gain later? Because you will gain. Choose your gain. One you will lose, one you won't. Jesus just said he is far more blessed to give than to receive. To give now in ministry freely. And that's the fourth and final mark of good ministry. What does good ministry look like? It's weakness. It's declaration. It's warning. It's freely. Just some of the marks of good ministry. Paul says here, look at me, Christian, and now just follow my lead minister like me. But here's the thing I want you to catch as, as I close here. The Apostle Paul in his life, Paul was just following someone else's lead, wasn't he? In the way he ministered. He was just following someone else's example. Did you catch it earlier? You saw it. It's in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Here it is. He said, be imitators of me. As I am of Christ. Paul in, in his ministry. He was just imitating Christ. In Christ's ministry. That's it. That's all he was doing. And now he's saying look at me and imitate me as I have imitated Christ. Everything we just read in this text. That is how Jesus has ministered to us. Christ has ministered to us in weakness. 
coming to earth as an infant and dying. Ministering his entire life on earth in humility and in tears and in great trials. Ministering to us in weakness. Christ has ministered to us in declaration. Faithfully declaring to us the whole counsel of God. Never shrinking even once from telling the whole truth. Christ has ministered to us in warning. Faithfully warning us in Scripture many, many times because Jesus loves us. And Christ has also ministered to us freely. Doing everything not for His own shameful worldly gain, but doing it freely. Giving His very life and giving everything else free of charge. Paul in his ministry was simply imitating Christ. And you know the most important thing for you now? It's not that you would now run out and try to minister like Jesus. That's not the most important thing. Now, the most important thing by far is that you would let Jesus minister to you. Because Mark 10, Jesus didn't come primarily to be served. He came to serve. The most important thing is you would let Jesus serve you. You would let Jesus minister to you daily. That you would receive His love for you. That you would receive His forgiveness. That you would receive His care for you. That you would receive His shepherding of you. That you would receive His warnings which are in love. And you would receive His friendship. And that you would receive all of that and more freely. Because He offers it to you freely, free of charge. Doesn't ask you to pay for any of it. Just receive it by faith. Let Jesus Christ minister to you every day and then you go Christian and you minister like Jesus not to gain something from Jesus ultimately that you don't have right now but because you've already gained everything in Christ Jesus Matthew 10 8 Jesus says this Freely you received, and now freely give. Father, we bless you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the care you show to us in and through your word. Some of the things you say to us surprise us. They don't always sound like love. And yet we we can see love we can see more love in your warnings than in the syrupy sweet talk of a wolf in sheep's clothing we see love in that you give us the whole counsel graciously freely that 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 we will know truth even the truths about our sin and repentance and judgment and hell and wrath even that is love, that you would, you would tell us about all of those things. We see your love in that you don't first call us to go out and shepherd. No, you sent a shepherd. You came as a shepherd. 
The one true shepherd who didn't run from the sheep when he saw danger coming, but laid his life down for his sheep. The chief shepherd and overseer of our souls. And we see love. You give all of this to us freely. You don't ask anything from us now. You don't say clean yourself up and you'll get these things. No, just come. Come in faith. Come to Jesus now and you will receive all of these things from me. You will be welcomed into my family. I will give you the kiss of a prodigal father. Give it freely. 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 Now, Lord, give us faith to receive it. Just as we are. (laughs) Broken sinners. Lord, not seeing the depths of our own hearts because they are deceitful and desperately wicked who can know them. We don't see our hearts. We just come, Lord, and I pray you give us faith to receive. And to receive free of charge. Come to me, all you who thirst. All you who labor. And receive rest from me. Receive living water from me. And then, Father, give us strength and give us joy as we turn to imitate Christ in ministering to those around us. Help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.